Let us pray. Gracious God, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Listen for the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of your Lord, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to, to, to you weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Listen again to God's word for us. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife but had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word 
With the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Above all, God, grant that this sermon and our whole worship service may grow us in your love and our love for one another. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our passage this morning, we hear about Jesus' birth, in particular from Joseph's, Joseph's point of view. We don't hear a lot about Joseph after Jesus' birth. In fact, we have no recorded words of Joseph. He's silent in the Gospels, even as his actions are quite powerful and faithful to God. Like Mary, he also shows what it looks like to hear God's message, God's call, and quietly, faithfully go about everyday life in light of that call. Both Joseph and Mary heard of the ways in which the child in Mary's womb, the child they would raise together, though he might be seen by others as scandalous, was a unique embodiment of God with us, Emmanuel. They both heard that Jesus would grow to do mighty and amazing things to carry out God's plans of caring for and rescuing his people. But I doubt that Mary or Joseph understood just yet that Jesus was God incarnate. That took time to sink in. It seems that nobody really appreciated the depth of who Jesus really was till Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my God upon seeing him raised from the dead. And along these lines, the birth stories about Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, about Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth to her and to Joseph's care, that we often think and hear of these stories as emphasizing Jesus' divinity. In many respects, they equally, critically, stress Jesus' humanity. Woven together with the opening of the Gospel of John and its proclamation of the Word, the creative, love, power, wisdom of God, the Word become flesh in Jesus Christ. Woven together with the Gospel of John, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke announced the ways that God literally became a part of creation as a human being, down to being grown and nurtured for nine months in the womb of a poor Jewish girl from Galilee named Mary, who had been recently engaged to a poor Jewish man, a carpenter by trade from Bethlehem named Joseph. The birth stories of Jesus and Matthew and Luke stress that God was born into and as part of this world. That in Jesus, God did not simply appear to be a human being. Didn't simply look like a human being or take on the appearance of a human like a costume. But that God actually became a human person, flesh and blood, bone and sinew. That he came into this world crying, helpless, hungry, precious, into the welcoming arms of Mary and Joseph. And God came with us in this way so that we might be saved from our sins, so that in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen Messiah, God might bear the eternal weight of the world's sin on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled with God and turned in thought, word, and deed to have life abundant and everlasting in love with God and our neighbors. For Mary and Joseph, though, the pregnancy itself 
must have called on a strong move of faith and trust. Because it was a pregnancy that at once defied regular explanation and undoubtedly elicited whispers and rumors. For Mary, her pregnancy made no sense aside from her meeting an angel who told her that she would become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and bear a son who would be called Son of the Most High and would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. And Mary, we know, in response to this revelation from the angel, ultimately said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Sisters and brothers, that is a bold thing to say and to embrace, given that outward appearances would be that Mary had committed adultery, a charge that she could have faced even during this time of engagement to Joseph. Mary took up that role of service and faithfulness to God even when outward appearances, including Joseph's own reaction, could mean her engagement to Joseph could unravel as she and her family faced shame. It could mean who knows what for Mary's future. But Mary held on to the promise and the words of the angel despite any concerns or uncertainties that nothing would be impossible with God. Mary's faith moved her forward even amidst those uncertainties. And Joseph presumably did not learn of this angelic encounter that Mary had before he heard through, one might imagine, word of mouth that Mary had become pregnant, that she was with child before they had been married. And assuming that she had been with another man, Joseph resolved not to marry her after all. The scripture says, though, that as Joseph was a righteous man, which in this case seems to mean that he was kind, compassionate, He didn't want to humiliate or shame or endanger Mary as best he could in breaking off their engagement, so he decided to do so quietly. But just then, his mind made up on that front, he was struck in a dream with a divine message akin to the one Mary had received, that the child that she bore was not the work of adultery, but of God's Holy Spirit. That the child would become, or would be named, Jesus, a name that literally means God saves, And he would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And Joseph, on waking from this dream, changed course and returned to the original plan to marry Mary. He now resolved to adopt and raise this child as his own, Jesus, no matter what others said. And I imagine there were murmurs and questions that Mary and Joseph faced and perhaps that even followed Jesus around his hometown growing up. But Mary and Joseph pressed forward in faithfulness on the word and the promises that they had received. They pressed forward in faithfulness on the convictions in their heads and their hearts that this child, born of the Virgin Mary, was blessed for a glorious purpose by God and was in their care and responsibility to raise. That this child was the sign and manifestation of Emmanuel, God with us, in a way that would somehow bring an end to oppression, an end to sin. And his extraordinary miraculous conception and growth in Mary's womb, which Mary personally experienced and Joseph took on faith, 
is something that led, likely led Matthew, our gospel author, to try to understand in light of the Hebrew scriptures. Something extraordinary and miraculous had happened. And that led Matthew to look to the scriptures to try to understand it. As biblical scholar N.T. Wright notes in his book, The New Testament in Its World, quote, Matthew adds an editorial remark that Jesus' birth fulfilled the words of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, about the virgin bearing a child who is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And N.T. Wright goes on to say, this is more interesting in that we know of no pre-Christian readers of Isaiah who took the passage in this way. It seems far more likely that the story of Jesus' extraordinary conception generated Matthew's search for relevant texts in the Hebrew scriptures, rather than, as is often suggested, the other way around. But for many folks, uh, the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Jesus, it's the kind of thing that can feel like a stumbling block. People wonder, we wonder, did this really happen? And I think uncertainties about Jesus' birth run parallel with questions folks often have, we often have, about anything out of the ordinary, anything miraculous in the Gospels. Any healing, any calming of a storm, feeding of 5,000 folks, any raising from the dead or rising from the dead. Anything recounted in the Gospels that is out of things that we've experienced or heard of others experienced or have been able to empirically observe or scientifically verify. About all these kinds of things, folks regularly wonder, did this really happen? How could modern, scientifically-minded people believe these things are possible? But in truth, I think these uncertainties, these kinds of questions, are, they're just the surface level of questions that actually run and, and cut much deeper. I think they're at root questions about whether we have a loving, personal, creator God in the first place. Because not to be too flippant about it, but if we do have a loving, personal, creator God, then it's not a stretch to think that this God could bring life into Mary's womb, could undertake anything we might find miraculous or extraordinary in the Gospels. If that creator God is active as recounted in the scriptures, then anything is possible. And everything from Jesus' miraculous conception to the healing power of his life to the healing power of his death and resurrection, they're not only possible, but quite plausible. A loving, personal, creator God of the universe could and would readily do all of these things. So the issue is not necessarily could a creator God do the things as recounted in the Gospels and Scripture in general, but rather is this God even there? Is there a personal, loving God, or is it all just wishful thinking? And it seems to me that the thing that intensifies and raises that question the most, that presses in the face of the promise and faith that we not only have, you know, have a loving, personal creator, but that Jesus Christ is our creator incarnate with us as one of us to save us from sin and from death. I think the thing that intensifies and raises the question most against that truth is the suffering and the death and the sin that still stalk the earth. We've all personally suffered 
aching losses, or we will, and we all receive on the news a steady diet of the pain and suffering of neighbors near and far. In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren goes on to say that it's perhaps not only a question of God's existence, but also that even if God exists, it's a question of can God be trusted to care for us given the fragility, the vulnerability, the woundedness of our lives and the lives of all those around us. She writes, quote, this is an increasingly common struggle. Many of those who walk into agnosticism or atheism do so not out of a reasoned proof, since there's no irrefutable proof for or against God's existence, but out of a deep sense that if there is a God, he, she, it, can't be trusted. If one feels these questions in one's bones or knows of other folks who do, and brothers and sisters, it's not hard to feel the weight given the state of the world today and throughout history. If you feel the weight of those questions. For me personally, one of the key starting points for reflecting on them is noting the ways that even amidst all that has gone wrong, we can still see and feel God's goodness with us, Emmanuel, in our everyday lives. A starting point for reflecting on those questions, at least for me personally, is the ways in which we can see and hear and learn to see and hear the movement of God's spirit in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, if we gain but eyes to see and ears to hear. And we could spend a great deal of time on this topic, clearly, and we can only touch on it briefly at present this morning, but I think that we can learn to name and to see the movement of God's spirit in a few core areas of our everyday lives. A first core area, I think, in which we can see the movement of God's spirit is in the beauty and in the delight of the creation at large, as well as human culture in particular. All you got to do is walk outside and pay attention to the sky or go home and listen to a piece of moving music. and You start to see life giving beauty. A second way in which we can see the movement of God and God's spirit in our everyday lives is in the exercise of our own gifts and talents to do helpful, constructive things in this world. Whatever gifts and talents one might have, those things in which you find that sense of flow, that's another place in which we can see the movement of God's spirit. A third everyday way in which we can see the movement of God's Spirit is in witnessing and in bearing fruits of the Spirit in our relationships with one another. When we see or practice patience, kindness, forgiveness, compassion, generosity, things which often arise so powerfully directly in response to realities of suffering and sin and death that might raise questions in our hearts. A fourth place in which I think we can every day see the movement of God's spirit is one that does take uh, even more practice than the first three, even more than looking for beauty, even more than looking for ways in which we can use our gifts and community with one another, even more than looking for the ways in which our relationships can show forth 
fruits of the Spirit. That fourth area in which we can see the movement of God's Spirit is in prayer and in times of directly seeking and listening for God in our lives, especially when we're in times of hardship and loss. Learning to see and hear and to look for and attend to the ways that God is moving all around us all the time, every day. It is a crucial step in leaning into the reality of God's love for us as our creator. And looking for the movement of God's spirit in these ways is something that can then lead us as well into the even deeper meaning of Emmanuel that we have in Christ Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have a shift from our creator not simply being with us in and through the beauty of creation and in culture, not simply in and through the active use of our talents, not simply through the fruits of the spirit that bless our relationships, not simply through prayer, but also now through our creator being with us as one of us in order to rescue us from sin and death that so often estrange us from God. And from that Christian perspective, from the perspective of affirming Jesus as our creator and our redeemer, God incarnate, to save us from sin and death by taking sin and death upon his own body. While that doesn't answer the question of why suffering is permitted, why bad things happen, and not just bad things, but horrible things, why those things are allowed to happen on God's ever-present watch, Although seeing the movement of God's spirit coming current as Jesus doesn't answer the question of why, it does enable us to affirm that the answer to that question can't be because God doesn't care. Timothy Keller makes this point in his book, The Reason for God, when he notes, quote, if we ask why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and then we look at Christ's sacrificial, saving, life, death, and resurrection. We still don't know what the answer is. But we do know what the answer isn't. It can't be that God doesn't love us. Keller bears witness that it can't be God doesn't love us because God came incarnate as one of us to bear the eternal weight of all that separates and estranges us from God and from one another. And sisters and brothers, in Advent and in at Christmas, we not only celebrate God's incarnation as one of us to redeem us and all of creation for God's life-giving purposes, but we also look ahead to the day of Christ's return when this rescue mission will come to full completion, when every tear will be wiped away, every wrong made right. And as we await that full kingdom come, as we continue to carry on our everyday lives, We can seek to look for and name the movement of God's spirit, God with us. And we can seek to do so like Mary and Joseph, carrying out our everyday lives lovingly and faithfully in light of the full glory of God's creative, redemptive work in Jesus Christ to free us fully from sin and death so that we can live abundantly and everlastingly in love with God and in love with one another. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever. Amen.